0: Liebəshut Der deutsche Spargelkult müsse enden. Germany's the defense minister has temporarily dropped his PhD title. Eine, eine
1: Perle der deutschen Industrie ich, glaube, ich weiß wie viel Liebe dahinter steht. Wenn Glühweinstände aufgebaut werden, wenn Wachtel Spargel Weltmeister
2: ist China, denn die
1: Hello everybody, welcome back to Spaßbremse. Today we are joined by Dr. Konrad Kunze, a researcher at the Research Center for Sustainability at FU Berlin and author of the book Deutschland als Autobahn, eine Kulturgeschichte von Männlichkeit, Moderne und Nationalismus, which translates to Germany as the Autobahn, a cultural history of masculinity, modernity and nationalism. Thank you so much, um, Dr. Kunze, for coming on the pod.
2: Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks so much. It's uh, it's great for you to join us. So uh, especially so recently after this this book came out, um, I you know caught our attention. It was just recently published from Transcript Press, um, and like I said, you know really uh, really spoke to a lot of the things we try to cover on this podcast. We've been talking a bit about um, I guess sort of car culture and, and, and transportation in Germany more generally, as well as climate change and this um, this. Touches on all of those notes and adds a, a really interesting sort of cultural and, and, and like psychoanalytical dimension to that of the the importance of of the autobahn and the car in German culture, and of course like car culture generally, I think has come under a little bit more political scrutiny lately, kind of finally, um, and it, it's great to see this critical lens applied to what seems to be such a core element of Germanness, as sort of as it's thought of it's like. Um, probably both within Germany and, and I know definitely without you know one of the most famous like cultural ideas of Germany abroad is this like you know you can drive really fast on the autobahn like everybody always talks about wanting to to go buy a, a Porsche and and drive it around too fast through Germany it's a very like sort of it's a part of the sort of dream of of a lot of other countries and it's obviously very central to Germany as well the way there's so much. Um, Political opposition to imposing a speed limit, the, the famous tempo limit, which is a hot button issue in Germany. And you know we're we're used to this sort of cliche cultural analysis of the U.S. and the the automobile as a really constitutive part of the U.S. identity, uh, but I think this book offers a, a really compelling account of the centrality of the car to, to Germany and German car culture as well, and sort of moving beyond this idea that you know the, the car is a sort of uniquely American thing. And, and I think you really compellingly show that maybe it's even, even more central to, to German history and German identity in some ways. And I was just wondering just to, to get us going, could you tell us a little bit more about why you chose to write the book, uh, maybe both why um, as a topic in general it's interesting to you and also why it felt applicable when you started writing it and, and even at this moment of publication?
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, I did start off to like have a relationship with the autobahn almost 20 years ago Um, and that was when I realized that uh, one was actually uh, scheduled to be constructed in a really nice countryside uh, where I used to go on the weekends and I really loved the landscape and I was really shocked to learn that it would be destroyed by an autobahn. Um, so I basically started off as an activist uh, fighting against this one, um, this one uh, motorway, and I've been doing this really, really long. Like with also sort with of breaks, like for a couple of years we didn't do anything, and then we had like very intensive uh, struggles and in court uh, demonstrations, uh, all sorts of things, uh, and it was a long. Um, a long time, a lot of chances to uh, talk to people and hear their arguments why they want this Autobahn, despite the fact that we have so many already. And we came up with so many arguments, (laughs) we had so many, we did so many studies. Uh, We had so much scientific proof that the, for example, the traffic jam in the city uh, would not be alleviated by having another autobahn outside of the city. There were so many studies on that. Uh, but nevertheless, it felt like we we're talking to a wall. It, we, we, we had this argument, we had that argument. Uh, then later, we, we had climate change. We had this sixth mass extinction. This, this autobahn is even threatening a few endangered species. Uh, and. The press was totally pro-autobahn. The and I have to admit, the majority of people, uh, even people living close by, were in favor of having <laughs> this autobahn. Um, the strangest experience was the day I made a few interviews with people living close by. <clears throat> and there was one lady in her house, a beautiful house with a beautiful uh, terrace, Uh, looking, uh, have a view of the valley uh, and the autobahn would be basically like three, four hundred meters from her house. She would look onto this street and have the noise and she was telling me how great it was that she could visit her, her children faster. She would save like 10 minutes to visit them and that she's in favor of progress. And I think this was maybe the uh, day that I realized there's something deeply irrational to this, that it makes no sense to try to understand it in terms of rational arguments, uh, also not in terms of, of traffic uh, traffic planning and, and all this stuff. Um, I still found it very boring to go really into this, um, what to say, this fascination and German Germans are saying mythos, the myths of the Autobahn. Uh, and then I discovered a friend recommended me one, uh, one book from a psychoanalyst that's um, Gudrun Brockhaus, and she looked from a psychoanalytical point at this Autobahn. And this was the day I think I, I took some interest in in going deeper into this fascination of the autobahn. So I started as an activist and then I, after almost 20 years, really, well, a bit less, 15, um, I finally decided to look scientifically into this um, deeply rooted fascination that Germans have for this, well, street. (laughs) It's basically just the street to go from A to B, but in reality it is much more, at least in this country.
2: Yeah, it's it's sort of. Uh, we'll get into more about the psychoanalytical question that you you bring up, and I think it it, it is sort of crucial to understand it because you know, it's like when you when I walk by and see an autobahn under construction, you know, if it's going through a nice neighborhood or a nice piece of nature or whatever, I just say, this is this is an atrocity. This is terrible. What what's happening? But then you say, yeah, these other people, even the ones who might be most negatively affected, are are sort of enthralled with it as a symbol of progress. And, and I think we'll we'll get into that um, throughout the history as well.
1: Yeah, if we could begin for a moment with a, you kind of start off with this historical account of different precursors of the autobahn and its early origins in Germany. Um, could you just run us through kind of an overview of the history of highways leading up to the National Socialist period, specifically?
0: Yeah, so I was <clears throat> I was surprised myself um, that in the history of the autobahn there's so many swastikas basically. Uh, I mean, I knew it, it's not really a secret, but it's so um, central, I was really surprised. I was asked to give an interview this summer um, for what they call the 100 years anniversary of the autobahn uh, to radio station. And the radio station uh, took the um, little street from Bonn to uh, Cologne, which was like 20 kilometers from 1932 as the first autobahn there is a discussion like at what point in history to count something as an as a, as a motorway as an autobahn but I think it's not true. I think uh, we have to admit the fact that uh, the Nazis constructed the first street that really looks like a modern autobahn. Like when you see it in a photograph, um, or if you would drive on it, I think everyone would say, yes, this is, a, this is four lanes. You can go like 150, 200 kilometers per hour. This feels like a proper autobahn. Um, so this was constructed in 1935 in the, f- the first two years of the Nazi um, government. The idea was not from them. The idea uh, began in 1927, a few years before the Nazis came. Mm, And it was mostly a political pressure group, if you want, a a lobbyist group of the steel industry, the construction industry and the automobile industry. Um, They basically compiled a huge list uh, with um, autobahns they wanted uh, and they've been pressuring the governments to finance it, but they could not. There was no chance of the Weimar Republic paying these expensive roads. And if you go one step further back, like where did they have the idea from in Germany? Um, Definitely the Italians. Um, Italy definitely had the uh, most um, automobile friendly roads uh, beginning as early as 1923 uh, and the construction began in 22, so almost immediately when the uh, fascists of Mussolini came to power in 1922, like immediately they started building this uh, autostrada, as they called it, uh, which is fascinating. They also had so many more things to take care of, <clears throat> but they spent money for this street. And then they started completing the first little uh, um, patch in 23. And then in 27, uh, I believe it really was a, the first stretch for Milano, to Lago Maggiore, that's in northern Italy, uh, was um, finished. So I think that inspired the um, uh, German engineers to say, "Okay, we want this as well." But in Italy, it was like less than 100 kilometers. Uh, we're speaking about like um, f- a bit more than 50 kilometers. It was constructed in the 1920s, and it was a good road, like one <clears throat> one lane on each side, but it didn't have two lanes on each side. Uh, and it was nothing where you could go like 200 or even even 400 kilometers per hour. That happened later in the 30s. Um, so that was like a step towards the autobahn. And uh, <clears throat> the massive construction program began pretty early, actually in 34, like in a f- after one year of Nazi rule, uh, Hitler gave like carte blanche to his um, construction minister. There was kind of a actually not a minister, more like some people described him as a street construction dictator, a Straßenbau dictator, which was Fritz Todt. He later, he made a career both basically from building this street, Uh, and he had full dictatorial powers, like he could could overrule uh, every law, he could expropriate everyone who wouldn't want to sell his land, he could um, ignore uh, every legislation from the proper, ministry of transport it was also there he could ignore the um, railroads at least he he was not let's say he was not uh, stopped by the protest of the military because the military people said we don't need this this consumes too much money so he could do whatever he wanted because he was a close friend of hitler and he had he could always say this is something hitler as of course the dictator he was once so no one can stand in its way so um, the construction really took off in 34 already and then in 1935 six seven it was uh, there was an enormous speed of constructing a thousand kilometers in uh, 36 and 37 and a thousand kilometers in one year is really fast would be really fast today
1: what i think is so interesting about You know, in the popular imagination, there's a very strong association with Germany and the Autobahn and the Nazis in building the Autobahn. But what I read um, in your book is that, this is kind of a quote pulled, when Hitler announced the Autobahn, he perhaps for the first time publicly acted against the opinion of his own followers. 99% did not own a car and could not imagine owning one. And so what I'm hearing from this description of this... um, the Straßendiktator, is that there was this shift from cars being associated with kind of like immense wealth to something that the average German desired. And was it really just these like cronies of Hitler planning it out? I mean, how did that, how did they make that jump? Because I think you said then in the following couple years, it only jumped to like 2% of people owning cars, you know, all the while that they're having this massive build out of the streets. So could you tell us a bit more about that kind of shift? And,
2: and maybe, yeah, mm-hmm. even specifically, like why, why the car, like obviously famously, like the, the Volkswagen coming out in this time too as part of the, the National Socialist period and trying to sort of democratize the car within the context of a political dictatorship but why in like multiple fascist regimes did the means of transport of the car, why did that have such a centrality to like their view of modernity? Mm-hmm.
0: Okay, it's a lot of questions. You uh, well, <laughs> can
2: take them one it's by one, <laughs>
0: um, um, Okay, so, okay, why is modernity and why uh, did the public opinion shift? i first like to talk about the public opinion. Um there we have let's um, okay um looking back at the time period, you can clearly see, as you said, um the car was not popular right uh today um I mean in all Western European countries in most countries, even in, in Europe uh cars are like uh, the most important consumer product it's as some would say. Uh, as a government it's really difficult to say you're know, like uh, reducing the number of cars etc uh, it was really different right um, the parties in the weimar republic before hitler came almost all opposed um, or let's say they're all they hostile to the autobahn project that certainly um, and especially the leftist parties the um, social democrats and the communist party um, they were against uh, against giving privileges to cars and car owners, and uh, the public opinion was such that uh, cars were seen as a privilege of the rich. Because of that, even NSDAP Hitler's party had to oppose um, cars and the autobahn in public. Um, so uh, there's lots of evidence it wasn't it wasn't popular, at least not popular amongst um, the 99 or 98 percent who didn't own a car. Um, And then it's really true, it did change. Um, Hitler himself, um, he applauded himself that he was the one, he said, uh, who finally changed the public opinion and did away with the, um, how to say, the resentment against cars. Yeah, and really good question, how did it happen? Obviously, the two important um, achievements were first to build these, these autobahns, where um, I believe they were not so popular in the beginning because most people could not really imagine that they would ever use them. They could see them, of course, they were celebrated as a national um, success, but imagining yourself sitting in a car driving on it was, I think, really out of the world for most. And then I think in the middle of the 30s it changed. It's hard to say when exactly it changed. I would say probably it was around 36, 37, when uh, the economy really took off, when everyone was employed, there was no unemployment anymore. And uh, only then did the uh, Nazi propaganda come out with the Volkswagen, with the idea to have a a cheap, affordable car, which everyone could, could own it someday. And, I mean, the interesting thing is, I mean, every government can promise it, of course, but Hitler was the the man in the government. People believed that he trusted him, that he would really deliver this. I mean, I think this really made a difference to to lots of other promises. So the propaganda was uh, really doing really well. I mean, I'm I'm still somewhat impressed when I listen to the... um, the radio broadcasts and uh, when i watched the, the the propaganda movies uh, etc uh, how how good they were they really 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 how to say um, impressive and looking back and seeing the fascination of people i, I think um, we have to say that it was successful people did believe uh, at some point in the middle of the 30s they started to believe they could really one day afford a volkswagen and then be uh, using it on the on the autobahn. And if the war would not have started in 39, which unfortunately it did, um, I think the whole story would have been very different uh, because it would have been, um, um, how to say, a big disappointment, right? Uh, because the Nazis couldn't deliver. I mean, they never planned on delivering a Volkswagen to everyone. They were clearly, knowingly cheating and lying. But they, they got away with it because the war started early enough uh, them to like uh, not having to deliver all these um, Volkswagen Beetles. So in the um, public, uh, in the popular consciousness, in the memory of people, like this cheating never really became a fact, right? I mean, scientifically it's absolutely proven, but in people's memory, um, this, this this promise of the Nazis is. Uh, something which was only stopped by the war, and not not by the fact that uh, the um, uh, Nazis were cheating people and, and promising them to to have a uh, have a car. So I think that that made it really um, it made it a popular idea to 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 own a car. And um, then, um, unfortunately, I would say after the war, this really happened. People did own their own Volkswagen, but
2: that's already the next topics uh, talking about the time after the war. Yeah no so I think that's yeah really like fascinating account of yeah how how this how this idea and the sort of the promise of the autobahn and, and the car was was important of the, the Nazi project but you also discuss the sort of flip side of that of of not only the Nazis deriving the, some of their like their sort of public legitimacy from the promise of the car but also getting their support from fossil capitalism and how that then also played into their support. Could you talk about the sort of other side of the equation and and the sort of backing of the Nazi party by some of the industries that were to benefit from the creation of of the Autobahns and and car culture in general?
0: Um, Yeah, there's a lot of literature, a lot of good research really, um, like who backed the Nazi party. And obviously the question is like, who paid their rise to power, who paid the um, enormous costs they had before they became the government?
2: yeah, we um, had we had so David David de Jong on a couple of months ago I talk about his book Nazi Billionaires, and so I think yeah. Oh right, okay, people, okay. So people will be people will be familiar with that, but yeah, specifically on the on the the cap the fossil capital side, it's really interesting. Okay,
0: uh, okay, the, okay. So the fossil capital that paid Hitler was um, to have a few names. It was it was BMW. Uh, it was the biggest producer of batteries for batteries, for cars, for airplanes or um, um, AFA at the time. Uh, it was uh, IG Farben, which was, uh, I believe, the biggest chemical company in the world at the time. Obviously, it was the steel industry because steel is always um, weapons. Ah, yeah, and it was the oil industry, uh, especially um, Detterding. Uh, Detterding was the uh, CEO, as we would call it today of uh, Royal Dutch Shell, um, one of the biggest oil companies of the time. He donated huge amounts also. And it was the coal industry um, in close to Cologne in West Germany. Um, they also gave uh, permanent donations to the Nazis. So they basically had their whole fossil industry um, paying donations to them before they came to power. There's, um, there's hardly anyone missing from the, from the fossil industry
2: interesting yeah so seeing seeing sort of both the, the the give and take there right um and then as you as you discuss like while this you know the the project of of actually getting everyone a car you know didn't happen in Nazi Germany of course and it probably probably wouldn't have given the the economic constraints and this use more as like a propaganda tool than actual potential economic reality but postwar that that sort of the, the sort of myth and that desire to own a car that was sort of set maybe set in motion during the Nazi period, then actually takes root, and I think in kind of distinct ways, but all, but um, but somewhat similar in both the the Federal Republic West Germany and uh, the DDR in East Germany. Could you talk a little bit about that that postwar period and during the Cold War and how the car centrality in in both you know both germanies at the time um, how, how that played out differently and, and maybe similarities as well
1: mm-hmm.
0: yeah uh, um, before we talk yeah let's let's first imagine the um, the transition years before before the republic's really started and uh, uh, and when the war ended most Germans kind of don't don't realize that there was a transition period there was four four years until 1949. Where Germany was partitioned into four um zones of um of, of the four um uh, victorious uh, powers, Soviet Union, Britain, France, and the US. I mean, then it also took a few years for these republics to really be to really function. Um, so let's say it was four years, maybe a bit more, like maybe five, six, seven until like they were proper nation states that were like doing what they what they should. Uh, and in this period, people like were like I mean, deprived very much of, of, of a living standard and also deprived of having cars, even those who had cars before, um, they couldn't use it. So the car changed its status for Germans again. They were basically for these years, uh, seeing the allied forces and the allied um, uh, administration, etc., going around of cars, while them Germans were like walking, using bicycles uh, and totally overcrowded um, public transport. So it must have been a huge privilege uh, after that experience in the 1950s to to, to owning a car. Uh, It was still a minority. It was still a small part of the population. But the desire apparently was very, very big to have one. Um, And West Germany was obviously... Very fast, very successful in building a huge, or uh, let's well, no, not building, but let's say reconstructing the huge car industry which it had during the Second World War. Apparently it survived, or at least the core structure survived. And uh, in the late 50s and in the 60s, like West Germany produced this huge number of cars. And I would say roughly uh, in the time end the end of the 60s, the beginning of the 70s every second family in West Germany owned a car. In East Germany it was slower, it was like 10 to 15 years uh, later, but nevertheless it also happened. Actually, I found East Germany more interesting because there was a quite a, a controversy in, inside the government if they should have it uh, or if they should simply not have a mass car culture. Apparently the site who wanted it um, succeeded in the end and they uh, even started building uh, one autobahn and they had this mass production of cars. Uh, but there was quite a strong voice who said we should not we should not continue that at all. Uh, in West Germany, it was never a discussion it was like clear from the beginning. Um, they would continue building autobahns and they would have a mass car culture. Uh, which was supported by the Americans, obviously, uh, which was greatly supported by um, access to cheap oil from uh, the American and uh, British colonies and the native from the oil states, and of course, as <laughs> as a main point of my book, as one of the main points, uh, people still had this dream from the 1930s of having their own car, and then they could they could they could slowly achieve it in the 50s and 60s. So uh, I think it was a um, Uh, somewhat a a bridge between um, thirties and let's say the sixties when like almost every family every second family had a car Um, like in a a really good PR campaign um, people were first exposed to a very long period of uh, advertisement where their appetite was really how to say
1: um yeah (laughs) (laughs) yes
0: Then had a long break where they were like starving to have this, and then they finally had it. So now, if you imagine the average German family, um, they have a Volkswagen which they remember they have seen it in the movies and the pictures like 20 years before, Uh, and they're riding it, they're driving it on the street which they've also seen 20 20 years before. So no one had to tell them that this was both Nazi invention that I think everyone knew very well um but it didn't have to talk about it so they could always say mm, well, i'm just buying a cheap car i'm just using a road which is here so it didn't have to be like politically uh, explicit right um, but implicitly uh, it was clear i think to everyone that they were driving on hitler's autobahn in hitler's car right it, it didn't need to be uh, mentioned right so uh, <clears throat> a lot of social scientists, especially from the Frankfurt School like Adorno, Horkheimer and others, they said that the uh, Nazi sentiment survived in the private sphere, in the sphere of consumption of everyday life, not in the political sphere. So there was not a, not a dis- public discourse, nothing which we could like analyze today, but there was a very strong continuity uh, in, in people's everyday lives and the car was obviously part of that.
2: Yeah, and so I mean, I think we'll, we'll talk a little bit more about you know West West Germany as, as the century progresses, and also you know into into unification. But I think this question of the DDR is really interesting because, as you say, it was a bit more. Um, the, there was sort of, it sort of feels like there were there's a path not taken there in terms of the the sort of emphasis of the car. And I mean, when you read some of the late history of the DDR, it's like these like constant economic struggles that they couldn't make enough cars to get. To get all the people. And there were these huge wait lists. There were some sort of essentially like black markets to get the, you know, the famous, uh, the famous Trabant, the Trabi and then the other cars as well. But that, that's the most iconic one from East Germany. And so there's a sort of constant political pressure and they're trying to keep up with West Germany saying like, no, we can offer, trying to chase the sort of quality of life of the capitalist West. And they could never really produce enough cars to make people feel like they were as well off as the West. And so. That decision to try to emulate the the like Western and you know it's to some degree inspired by the US to, in, to sort of chase that idea of modernity rather than kind of craft a new vision of mobility and modernity in the East feels like a really, really critical, like a really critical turning point for the for East Germany. And I mean, you know, it's sort of a you can, you can almost say in some ways that like car culture helped bring down the DDR if, if you look at it a certain way. So could you talk a little bit more about that and sort of the specifics of what, what it was like in East Germany and, and the importance of the car there?
0: Yeah. So, um, so the Republic had this kind of, uh, what's the, you have to tell me the English translation, Danai Geschenk. It's like a poison present. Can, can I say a poison, a poison present? Is that, is that a word?
1: oh yeah like uh right like it appears as a present but it a- is actually poisonous like yeah. kind of it says it has to do with like a trojan horse
0: yeah kind of a trojan horse yeah kind of yeah okay so let's say let's say the autobahn was kind of a trojan horse so the uh, uh the, the german democratic republic ddr it inherited this Trojan trojan horse if you want by actually having compared to the size of the country, the uh, probably the biggest network of, of, of highways in the world at the, at the time, 1949, which was absurd because they had no cars, they had no gasoline, they had nothing, but they had this huge network. Um, they also inhabited the biggest uh, and the most dense, again, compared to the size of the country, uh, railroad network in the world. Which was very useful. They used it, started to use it uh, uh, immediately. But it was—I imagine—it was a bit strange. They had no cars, but they had these huge roads. <clears throat> so the the roads were like a permanent temptation to use them. And um, again, there was this—I think—a strong popular drive towards towards having cars again, especially in the in the elite and the people that were well a bit better off. And. Um, we have to we have to remember um socialism was not really communism there was still differences between classes of people right it was a much uh, how to say the uh, difference was much smaller than today but it was still kind of a class society um and there was okay a part of them really wanted cars the problem was as soon as they started producing cars from the factories that they had um expropriated from BMW, um, Soviet Union would say, um, thanks very much dear Germans, uh, you produce these nice cars, you're going to deliver them as another reparation um, for the damages you've done uh, to Soviet Union. So um, uh, Soviet Union they had quite a lot of, quite a lot. had some BMWs made in East Germany in the 1950s. <laughs> so one I think one possibility or one escape for East Germany to actually own the cars they produced was to produce cars the Soviet Union would not want. <laughs> so I think it might have been one reason to produce these ugly little uh, two-stroke cars, because this was the point where um, a Moscow would say, OK, you can keep them. <laughs> um, <laughs> The second thing was, at some point in the fifties, they apparently decided not to have just a few good cars, which they did actually produce. Really, I looked at the you can I mean you can look up the pictures, and I think they produced quite good cars, even fast cars. They had one which was going one hundred forty kilometers hour, which was a lot in the time. And uh, the well head of the state Ulbricht, he said he wants equivalent of the Mercedes of the time, and they actually produced a few. But then they stopped. So they stopped um, to produce a smaller car, uh, uh, to produce a cheaper car, but to have a mass production, to really produce a lot of them. And that was, I think, a um, decision with with, with um, lots of implications because they didn't get out of this development path afterwards. And, um, yeah, there was a lot of opposition. There were a lot of people saying they could not spend money. I mean, these even the cities were not reconstructed. And especially so again, Soviet Union wasn't willing to deliver the oil. It was the only source of having oil and gasoline. And uh, there's lots of reports how different ministers of <clears throat> East Germany were basically sent to Moscow begging for oil, which they described as humiliating again and again. But apparently uh, at some point the the well, the Russians or Moscow started delivering more oil. And so, more gasoline and made it possible to have more cars. There was one interesting um, anecdote I found. The, um, well, quite famous feminist, if you want, author of, of novels, um, Christa Wolf. Um, she wrote in her memoirs that in a big plenary meeting, I think she was a member of its uh, central committee, uh, quite the important political body. In the central committee, I think she, she was going to the stage to deliver a speech. And uh, it must have been in the 50s. Uh, in, in the speech, this, she said how stupid it would be to produce motorcycles in a country where they have a socialist government and they do not want the young people to, like, well, drive themselves to death uh, with motorcycles. And she said she should, that they, sh- they should rather produce something that makes sense, not motorcycles. And in this, after the speech, she was ridiculed by her male um, comrades, who, well, she said, uh, Du hast wohl so angst vor Motorradfahren. You're afraid of driving motorcycles. This was like what they said. And they laughed her out. And um, this was the, the only uh, open opposition to, like, Establishing a car and motorcycle culture, I could find there was lots of um, hidden opposition, like lots of uh, attempts to cut the finances, etc. But apparently, there was not like a real open discussion of do we really want to have a culture of like one car per family. Khrushchev, the um, head of Soviet Union, he had this idea actually. He said, he said Soviet Union would not copy the the uh, American model. They would rather have something like car sharing. And interestingly, they tried something like car sharing in in Soviet Union of the 50s and 60s, <clears throat> but it, it failed. It totally failed. Um, apparently they didn't have the smartphone, they didn't have the internet, so car sharing <laughs> didn't function as it does today. I mean, today it functions, <laughs> no? I mean, there's so much there's so much car
2: sharing in Berlin now. The
1: app development wasn't there yet. Yeah. Um, yeah.
0: Yeah, totally. So, I'd love to see the UI see of really, the really Soviet,
2: the Soviet Miles app. Yeah, I think it might have some cool designs.
0: <laughs> yeah. So um, yeah, so we find some quotes from Ulbricht and Khrushchev saying like they would not copy the American model, etc. But in the end, they did. They basically did. They basically tried to catch up. Um, first, uh, East Germany, uh, then Czech Republic, uh, Yugoslavia, and then. I think Soviet Union came quite late. It came much later with a mass production of cars. Okay, and then second part of the question, second part was yeah the Trabant, this small East German car being a symbol of the failure of socialism. I think it's more made a symbol of failure in in recent times than it really was in its lifetime. Uh, for example, there was uh, the uh, thirty years anniversary of the fall of the wall. Um, when was it? Well, two, two 2019 and I guess 2020, the unification. And they had like a projection uh, in the night sky, and they had one projection of a piece of the wall, <clears throat> and the second projection was a trabi. So it's hmm. like, it's like, it's like produced by today's uh, today's republic, like the two symbols of oppression. This is there's a wall and there's a terrible car. This is what you get in communism. <laughs> <Buddhism. laughs> Um, and yeah, <clears throat> yeah and uh, also in movies. For example, there was this one movie. It's called Barbara. And there's an f- interesting scene in a movie: an uh, East German man and a West German man. They meet in a forest, both in their cars. The one has a huge Mercedes. The other one has a small Trabi. And then the one speaks a terrible dialect. The other one speaks quite fluent uh, German. And uh, the East German man envies the West German man with his, with his Mercedes and asks him how fast it is and so on. And the movie is somewhat making fun of this masculinity. Someone says, OK, this, this masculinity is tied to this car and the other one is tied to the other car. So it's quite, it's really quite a popular trope. It's really a topic in, in movies and, uh, and exhibitions uh, and so on. I think in a time when a travi really existed it wasn't like that i think a lot of owners of the don't have the number i think it was millions of travis a lot of the owners were quite proud of it Um, i can remember they were really proud they could repair themselves because it was uh, produced in in a simple fashion so you could repair it yourself Um, i think those who received one they were happy i think um, but the problem was, <clears throat> the more Trabi's the government um, produced, and they produced really a lot, the more the people who did not have one yet uh, wanted it, and the, the more um, unhappy they became. In the, be- in the first 20 years, in the 50s and 60s, when like it was like a normal thing not to have a car, <clears throat> it didn't make people unhappy, right? But once your neighbors have one, you want one as well. I, th- I think this effect was disastrous. For East Germany, as a, as a government, you should. I think you should either you deliver a car to everyone, or or you don't do it. But delivering it to half of the population will definitely create like like lots of envy. That was definitely a, a thing that uh, contributed to to um, discontent with the government in the 80s. I don't think it was the <clears throat> it was the
2: main reason, but it certainly was a big factor. Yes, that's 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 really true great and then so then you know sort of moving back obviously um like you said you know reunification in in 1990 but sort of leading up to that like you know even before even before the, the sort of governments all merge into into the Federal Republic as you discussed with the East there's almost a emerging of the idea of the car as something that everyone should have um, in in both societies and so I, I think the the post-war, The post-war West is is obviously our sort of like foundation of what we kind of consider like modern German car culture today and it's sort of becoming like a a pop culture phenomenon as well. I mean, probably most famously with the 1974 Kraftwerk song. And and in this period like you really- this is where um, you we wanted to get back to this idea of psychoanalysis. And I think you use that lens to describe the importance of the car, the Autobahn, um, speed itself, you know, obviously, I don't know if we said this explicitly, but I think um, it's fairly famous of the, the the sections of the autobahn where there is no speed limit, and that like that that sort of centrality in the sort of the sort of German psyche, I guess you could say. Could you discuss that a little more and sort of how this kind of develops in this yeah the sort of psychoanalytical way?
1: Maybe just sorry to jump in, but and to throw a bunch of questions at once, but maybe a good place to start would be this like crisis of masculinity that you describe following the first world war and like this, just briefly the stab in the back myth um, to then kind of go through um, state managed masculinity I believe is the term that you use and how the car kind of contributes in resolving this crisis.
0: Mm Okay, If that um, makes sense, I hope. Yeah, yeah, totally. <laughs> I mean, I try to keep it short. I mean, it's, again, it's a very complex question. I try to make it short and not, not to talk too long, but okay, I try to summarize it. Um, okay, as I said, there was, a, there was something like a crisis of masculinity after the First World War in both Italy and Germany. Um, in Italy, um, the thing was that they ac- actually succeeded in a war. But then these men came home and had miserable lives. Um, so they were unhappy there. That was one reason of the um, crisis of masculinity. And in Germany, they obviously lost, and they came home and had mis- miserable lives. Um, so that made the, cre- the crisis even deeper. And it was mostly a conservative trope to, to call it a crisis of masculinity. Um, the the left, uh, whole left uh, uh, parties and movements never used the term. But nevertheless, we could say maybe it was true. Um, if you look at the pictures of Otto Dix, for example, we, we definitely see the topic um, in, emerging. And um, in Germany, there was a second thing that made it, it aggravated this, this perceived crisis, uh, which I believe was the um, surrender of the whole left to Hitler in thirty-three. 1933, um, especially the trade unions. And the social democrats—they basically surrendered. Um, and even worse, they tried to cooperate, uh, and they did for a few months, and then they were kicked out, uh, which, which, like I think, must have felt as like a tremendous humiliation for people who identified with the trade unions and who identified with SPD, with the social democratic party. So now they had the Nazis, plus they had this humiliation of having lost, plus the humiliation of their organizations having miserably uh, surrendered. And I listened to lots of these terrible Hitler speeches, and and when you listen carefully, you you hear this topic of crisis of masculinity all the time. He's always talking to like his man, to his his workman. He's permanently talking about the um,
1: the uh, um, um,
0: uh, Schande
1: like the scandal or the shame
0: the shame yeah he's he's, he's literally literally talking about this sh- the shame of unemployment the um, like the moral swamp of people being unemployed uh, how bad it was so it's not an economic it's a moral thing for him at what it was and then he's presenting, especially the autobahn, he's presenting it as a tool to lift men, he's not talking to women, he's talking to men, to lift men out of this swamp, out of this shame in a moral sense, which also made sense because they were paid uh, very low wages, so he he had to promise them at least uh, that it's lifting their spirits and lifting their masculinity and that was really strong, I, I found it in most of these speeches so that was the um, masculinity produced by the state for uh, the working class and then of course there were the heroes the heroes of the car races of the uh, speed records made on the uh, the, um, the uh, breaking of the world speed record on the autobahn um, this with like 420 kilometers per hour this this, this was uh, very much used to produce heroes uh, and again, um, the science tell us that having heroes is very, very central to having a toxic masculinity. Uh, and as uh, Raven Cornell, for example, the, the um, um, scientist of masculinity from Australia, as she says, you always have like a um, um, hegemonic masculinity to look up to. And this was clearly these uh, heroes of, of um, car races. And then you have um, a defiant, like a not completely conforming masculinity, uh, and this was framed as, as a Jewish masculinity by the Nazi propaganda. Uh, and then you have a complicit masculinity, and this uh, which is complicit with the hegemonic masculinity, and this, I think, was the masses of, of workers uh, who were invited to at least dream a bit to be this hegemonic man, this hero which they could never be, uh, but at least identify with him. And apparently, as we see, uh, unfortunately, it this worked. So the Nazi era, it was only 12 years in Germany, but I believe it was very successful in producing new masculinities. I mean, if it would not have been, the whole war would not have worked as it did. And after the war, I think both German republics, they somewhat had to um, find a solution to deal with this masculinity which was obviously now in a deep crisis again after having lost the second war and again like in the 30s um, the solution was to provide men with cars and not of heroes so much i mean uh, they tried especially east germany tried to have like national heroes of of, uh, automobile races i think this didn't work very much people wanted their own car after the war but providing them, I think, was part of a new of a new masculinity. And then the song Kraftwerk you mentioned from 1974, <laughs> I, I called it like the secret anthem of Germany um, because I think it, uh, it it has a certain truth. It really represents a sort of popular popular feeling that's like this uh, this uh, ecstasy of speed on the autobahn it's like really part of, of a popular sentiment. And uh, there's an interesting concept from Mimi Scheller, that's the social scientist from the US uh, who worked a lot about mobility. And she says there's mobility, like the real movement you're doing, and there's motility, which is just knowing the fact that you could go somewhere in a certain way. You're not doing it, but you know you could do it. And uh, motility is contributing a lot to people's um, um, f- self-esteem right you know you could jump in a plane or a train and go to Paris if you wanted tomorrow you're not doing it but you could do it so uh, and this motility i think is is a concept we need to make sense of this speeding on on the autobahn i mean everyone who had a car could go on the autobahn and go with like 200 kilometers per hour or how fast you could i mean how often are you doing it rarely right maybe once a month maybe a few people every day on their way to work, but mostly there's traffic and you can't even go so far. But the fact that you know you could do it, I think like it's changing people's perception of being in the world. So I think this is a point where psychologically it really has an, has an impact. And if, if you look on the statistics, like who owns a car, who has a license, um, it's very masculine. It's, it's still today more men <clears throat> uh, owning cars, it's still today much more men uh, having um, accidents at high speed, etc. And we can expect in the 1950s, 60s, after the war, uh, it was very much a masculine thing to, hold, to own a car. So um, the whole culture of being of, of speeding on the autobahn was a masculine culture. This is, I think,
2: very clear. The, the benzene in Blut, as they say, right? The petrol coursing yeah. through your veins, the Germans.
1: Well what I wanted to mention about that too is it also occurs to me that part of it is this part of the German masculinity surrounding the car so is the like tüften like the working on your car the like repairing it that just comes to mind as like part of this uh, self-efficacy too that kind of gets tied in of like mm. not only speeding on the autobahn but also understanding the machine being able to, like, work with it um, seems kind of, like, all wrapped up in there.
0: Yeah, which is not a German thing very much, I think. In many really? countries, that's a thing. Yeah, yeah, there's, yeah. And apparently in Russia, there's a there's a culture of men repairing their cars and their garage in the last 30 years as a way of compensating a loss of, of, of competence, a loss of control in your life. Yeah, there's a bit of research on this. Mm. Yeah, I mean, it it's, I like mean,
2: it's a safe space now. <laughs> I've heard some, I've heard some opposition to like to electric cars framed in that of like, well, I can't, I can't tinker with it, and I can't, I can't repair it myself because there's, you know, it's just a different, obviously a different technology, and so yeah, I mean, I think maybe, like you said, maybe it's not 100 specifically German thing, but obviously I think there is the idea of of repair and the self efficacy. Michelle mentioned as like a a very core kind of masculine masculine theme, even if it's not unique to Germany. Um, but that, that point about the electric car then sort of brings brings us to um, some of the more sort of modern day political developments that I, I think we can sort of we can work on closing out on because we don't want to keep you for too long. Um, but we hear a lot about like the Mobilitätswende, the sort of like mo- mobility revolution in Germany, um, and one part of that is of course the introduction of the electric car. Notably, Tesla has built the, this giant Giga factory outside of Berlin. Could you tell us a little bit more about your thoughts on electric cars as a solution for our mobility problems, you know, maybe both with the Tesla and Elon Musk specifically, as well as the sort of phenomenon and, and technology uh, of the electric car more generally? And if 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 it makes sense to just sort of replace internal combustion engines for, for electric cars one-to-one, or if the, this is going to bring up a lot of the sort of same problems we face today?
0: Yeah, I'm really sceptical about um, electric cars rep- just replacing um, combustion cars. In Germany we say uh, we make the difference between uh, Mobilitätswende, which means transition of mobility, and Antriebswende, which means just the uh, transition of the engine. And uh, I mean, having electric cars the way it is, having, it is uh, happening at the moment is, is just uh, changing the engine, but not changing changing the system. Um, I looked at the numbers of factories producing electric cars and Tesla could do, uh, I think last year, they could do 1 million a year. There's other factories, but uh, at the moment, there's 1.3 billion cars in the world. Estimates are that until the end of this decade, it will be two or even two and a half billion cars global globally. So if you look at the numbers, the factories can... can uh, produce at the moment, and then you take like one or two or two and a half billion cars, it would take centuries to produce them. So it's literally technically impossible <laughs> to, to replace a fleet of internal combustion um, cars uh, uh, with electric cars and any uh, um, time horizon that makes sense to avert catastrophic climate change. Um, so I think it's really not a solution. It's really just a way of having cleaner cities in very few places in the world, uh, while not not changing the bigger system. Now, looking at this uh, at this symbolic uh, value of the electric car, I think it's an interesting question you ask. Like, what is it doing with this masculinity? On the one hand, it's true. Uh, I think it's it's less masculine because it's not uh, that noisy. And you can't you can't um, like yeah tinker around yourself. On the other hand, the small factor thing is is really is really important that electric cars are faster, and they accelerate more powerful and faster than than combustion cars. So, <laughs> at the trivial uh, speed race at the, at a the traffic light, uh, a Tesla is always going to win against uh, other cars. And even the most powerful Porsche is still a bit slower than the most powerful tesla it's It's a technological thing an electric engine can accelerate faster than a combustion engine and it's it's it might might be a detail, but coming back to masculinity, I think it's it is important you're in this car, which is not noisy, but you know that you're like in terms of speed and acceleration is superior to everyone else on the street i think the uh fastest te- fastest tesla was uh at least they advertised it with a top speed of 400 kilometers per hour, which is like insane i'm not sure they're really doing it i think that, i think they they reduced it to less but okay but that shows like um, the electric car is still part of this masculinity right it's they're not producing small cars, they're producing like um, um, sports cars and SUVs. So it's not so much a change. It's mostly really changing the engine and keeping the, the, the rest of the system as it is. So I think it's the wrong solution, really. I think we should not put our hopes on, on Tesla or electric cars.
1: And you only really feel superior up until the moment when your Tesla sets on fire. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's uh, that's, ablaze, or like...
2: That's the other problem. And yeah, I mean yeah. I saw it was a few a few weeks ago, but it was a, a German politician sort of defending like there is still this sort of conservative resentment against the electric car. I think someone I forget who it was, but defended the internal combustion engine, saying like we can't ban them in the EU as there's a plan to do eventually. They were like it's it's a high culture. Like it's sort of comparing it to, I don't know, <laughs> like Classical music, or or you know, or art, or something mm. like being like it, I just quote
1: to Deutsches Kulturgut is. Uh,
2: <laughs> yeah, and I was like, I thought was so revealing about. I mean, it, it ties into the whole message of your book, right? This person saying, like, you know, like, you know, they say well, Germany is the the land of the the thinkers and the poets, and it's like, and the and the engine, <laughs> like it's up there as like the, it's up there as one of these core elements of like who we are as a people. <laughs> mm.
0: Yeah, yeah, this is, it is true. Um, there's this one uh, Facebook group, which I analyzed this Facebook group. It's uh, fighters for hubraum. I don't know how to translate it.
1: It's like the cylinders, like the displacement capacity, cubic capacity, says Google.
0: <laughs> capacity. Okay, probably makes sense only in German. This is yeah. Like, <laughs> so let's say it's fighters for combustion engines. Uh, and They had half a million... Um, uh, members in Facebook, which is quite a lot. Uh, Lesson for this for future, but still a lot. And um, they were mocking um, electric cars. They hate them. So uh, and they are, they are clearly clearly like a, a Facebook group where toxic masculinity is like produced on a daily basis. Like they hate environmentalists. They don't believe in climate change. They hate women. They hate feminism. They don't hate women. They just hate feminism um they hate ecology etc it's, it's long it's, it's it's a hate group mostly but then they praise cars but only cars of combustion engines they're deeply deeply hostile to electric engines uh, and yeah, one reason is that simply it's not German. I mean, they, obviously Tesla is 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 uh, an American company. I think this is one point. this is nationalism, and um, again, as you said, there's a second point. It's a bit less masculine than a, than a combustion engine. But I think we should be careful not to like fall into a wrong um, uh, into wrong uh, oppositions. Right? It, I think the fact that these absolutely toxic uh, 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 men are uh, opposing electric cars shouldn't lure us into into the opposite position saying we embrace them, right? I think they're still wrong. Uh, despite, um, I mean, in the US everywhere, toxic
2: masculinity is probably opposing electric cars. Yeah, no, it's a good point to not Yeah, not not say Oh, people people I don't like, don't like this thing. Therefore, it's good. It's like, no, no, no. let's, uh, let's think critically about both of them.
1: You mentioned like the ecological aspect and environmentalism and that kind of ties into what we wanted to close out with, which is um, some modern or current political movements. Um, I believe you reside in Berlin where topics like the campaign to um, remove cars from the city center, uh, as is the idea behind Berlin Autofrei, as well as a um, activist campaign against the a100, which is this freeway that's going to be, that is being built through Berlin. These movements have gained some purchase. Could you kind of offer your thoughts on this as well as other maybe political currents, both pro and anti-car in Germany today?
0: Yeah, we have we have these strong anti-car movements in the cities Um which is i think a quite recent thing i, I mean it happened it always existed but it really uh, gained a lot of uh, attraction in the last couple of years mm, and um, especially berlin yeah there's this strong opposition against the a100 uh, motorway being like built through the city center and scheduled to be built even even further <clears throat> and that's a really new thing there was i think the first um Occupation of of by climate activists in uh, 20 um, 2020 and 21 in Berlin against the A100. I was there myself. I think it was one of the. F- no, it was not the first time, but okay. It, for a long time, it was it was the first political action that really with civil disobedience opposed the construction of, of a motorway. Then there was this uh, occupation of a forest in uh, Danarula um, People occupied this forest to stop the construction of the uh, motorway, and the police was... The the, the, the the I mean, the images it produced were really impressive. The, the police was literally pushing aside to the, the, the protesters. And just after the police came the caterpillars and, and the huge machines that tore down the forest. It was, was really sad. And you also and had
1: the, activists like climbing up in the trees and kind of like having their hammocks and like, you know, trying to really occupy that space. It was, yeah, the images were pretty spectacular from that
0: yeah true. i mean it was it was uh, i think they could stay for 3 years in the forest because they had these tree houses yeah <laughs> and the tree houses made it really difficult for the police to evict them they had to get like special climbing teams and there were so many tree houses um, they couldn't evict evict them quickly it took them months if not years to evict the forest I mean, I never surrendered, right? I mean, I was there, so I think I can say we, I think we, we did a good fight. We lost in the end, but we lost in a, in a, in a good way um, that people were inspired despite the fact that they cut down the forest in the end, because we put up a really, really good um, fight and a really good opposition to this. And it really caught the national attention because like for the first time there was like, the, the eight o'clock news was full with these protest. really, Determined protest against against the motorway. And um, after this forest occupation was dissolved, <laughs> people went into all sorts of other forests in the country. And uh, at the moment it feels like where, whenever there is a forest to be to be cut down for, for a street, someone is going to start occupying trees. It's, it's, a, it's a bit changing, but there were like between 10 and 20 occupations. Um, and that's really a new thing. It's really a good thing. I think there's so many um, disobedient protests against building uh, autobahns and streets. And then in the cities, yeah, we have this thing in Berlin to um, to throw out cars almost entirely from the city center. I mean, a quite big city center with the um, the S-Bahn ring, the ring of the um, train circular line. I'm curious if it will succeed. I'm a bit skeptical, I have to say. I hope really it does. It will succeed. And there was a strong debate uh, beginning with the pan- pandemic to have a speed limit on the autobahn. There's again a debate now because of the um, energy uh, shortage. Curious how this will turn out. At the moment, we still don't have a speed limit. But uh, considering, I mean, the history of Germany, it is already a really big step to have these protests and uh, to have these attempts to throw cars out of cities at all i mean if if you look at amsterdam or paris or copenhagen it's a different story (laughs) i'm I'm really envious of them but i mean you're speaking about germany so um it's it's a lot that is happening really recently to um yeah to really overcome this crazy system and and one thing is it doesn't stop right people many people have a perception that like we are on a stable level of, of the, number, with the number of cars and the number of motorways, but it's not true. Government is still constructing lots of new roads and the number of cars is is approaching 50 million. And it's not stopping, it just keeps climbing and climbing by itself. So <clears throat> if you don't want to like, I don't know, have terrible air pollution everywhere, at some point we need a political solution to that.
2: Yeah. I mean, it's, you mentioned these other cities and it's, it's funny. Cause I think sometimes Berlin likes to romanticize itself as like sort of in the same league as, as Amsterdam or Copenhagen, as far as being a cycling city. <laughs> and it's just like, <laughs> and it's just really not at all. Like people, there's a lot of roads and people can drive very, very quickly. And there's a, a way too many tragedies. I mean, I am a cyclist and often feel very, very unsafe, you know, around the, around the city, even though it's, you know, comparatively good infrastructure, maybe to like the U S or the UK, but it's a, it's definitely not not where it needs to be. Um and and yeah, like you said though, I mean maybe some some sort of nascent sentiment to to campaign against this, but it's not. Um it's uh, it's it feels like it's still in the sort of the, the realm of defensive actions, right? It's not it's not actually taking away in most cases, not taking away space from cars, but just sort of trying to halt even more space being given to them. You know, with this this A one hundred probably most um most notably and just sort of seems like a, a really crazy thing that they're just going to build yet another highway in like in a really core part of the city and just like you see it being built and you're just like how how are they still doing that in the year 2022
0: yeah it's, it still seems like a radical thought if you say we want <clears throat> we want the construction of of of, of highways to stop uh, it's like even radical uh, environmentalist groups they didn't make it a demand recently um so i think it's a very german thing to say like a stop to to building autobahns is radical but, yeah <laughs> but also that is it's, it's slowly changing it's slow it's slowly getting better i think
2: yeah absolutely well i think that's uh that's probably a good place to leave it for us um i think this really really fascinating conversation and, and covered a, a ton of you know this, this history and as well as this really interesting um cultural and, and psychoanalytical dimensions you mentioned is there anything else you'd like to say before we close out? And we also, of course, will give you a, give you an opportunity to sort of plug anything you're, you're working on or where people can find your current work.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, if you could mention my climate camp, that would be great. We're having an anti-autobahn climate camp oh, yeah, in two absolutely.
2: weeks. We'll put the link in the in the show notes. So uh, we'll, of course, link to the book as well. You um, can get, get it mm-hmm. from uh transcript. Really
1: cool pictures great, yeah. and like documents and the, you know, you're just like scrolling through it. It's all available online. And I would encourage people who are interested in this topic to at least go look at some of the images, which are,
2: yeah, mm-hmm. just it really is, It is in German, but I think, I think most of our listeners yeah. would uh, would read German pretty well. And if you don't grab it anyway and work on your German and learn about this great history. Yeah. If, if anyone feels like translating it, I don't
0: know if, if... If that happens but it would be legal if if you republish it uh, as a free online book again with this creative commons license it has it's absolutely legal to to translate it or do whatever oh,
2: cool. okay well if there's yeah. any translators out there feel free to get in touch with us and we will put you in touch with conrad
1: <laughs> thank you so much for for that discussion we really appreciate it
2: yeah thanks for inviting me also yeah Conrad Hunza, thanks so much for coming on the podcast and well, hope to talk to you soon.